This special Editor's Choice edition of the JCMS podcast is made possible by an educational grant from AbbVie, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Well, hi, and welcome to this special Editor's Choice edition of the JCMS podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Barber. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And today, uh, we'll be talking about something very topical, especially for listeners in Central Canada, the gypsy moth and the gypsy moth dermatitis. Gypsy moths are not just having a big impact on trees in Ontario and Quebec, but also on humans. They strip the trees of their leaves, and on humans, they produce an urticarial rash that is very intensely pruning. So thank you for joining us to explore the gypsy moth and gypsy moth dermatitis. And today we have two guests with us. Um, Dr. Melinda Gooderham is the medical director at the Skin Centre for Dermatology in Peterborough, Ontario. And she's also an assistant professor at Queen's University. And she works as a consultant physician at the Peterborough Regional Health Centre. And it's been her acute eye and sense of discovery that led us to the gypsy moth dermatitis and the uh, article that we published as a medical letter at JCMS. And she also led us to Professor David Beresford, who teaches biology in the environmental studies program at Trent University. He studies insects and pest management is his true specialty. Melinda, hi again. And uh, and welcome back to the podcast world. Uh, when you brought this gypsy moth story up to me, I was fascinated. I mean, this is this is uh, this is interesting. This is the interface between um, humans and our environments, right? And and uh, and to hear the devastation that's occurred in your forest, I mean, it's amazing. So uh, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Uh, what brought it to your attention? Yeah, it was it was one of those just, you know, normal day in clinic. I had some mole checks booked and I had this uh, patient who came in for just a mole check. And as I was uh, doing the skin screening, I, I noticed a rash on her arms. And usually the patients will bring that up to you to say, oh, by the way, I have this rash. Can you take a look? Well, she didn't mention it. And so I said to her, you have a rash on your arms. You know, what? what's this from? And she said, oh, it's the gypsy moth. Uh, outbreak and and I sort of paused and I was like pardon I don't know what you're talking about and so she was educating me on this and then I thought you know how is there um, this rash that I've never heard of when this is my job and she's you know uh, as a patient with it she's educating me so I kind of went home that night and I did some more reading because I I was fascinated by it when she told me about the the little hairs from the caterpillar and then, uh, you know, telling my colleague the next day at work, and she had a patient, and then I had another patient. So we had these six patients within three days with the same sort of story, all outside for different reasons, all had known uh, contact with the caterpillars with with a very similar rash. So, you know, going back and, and learning the story about, you know, how the gypsy moth was introduced into North America and sort of spread and uh, causes this growth and defoliation of the trees, I thought was really quite fascinating. So I, I just started reading all I could about it and, uh, yeah, and decided to write the paper. So in the paper, you show a forearm. I think it's a forearm, right? And, it's, yeah. and it literally has, you know, 30, 40, 50 kind of urticaria papules. I mean, did she lay down on these caterpillars or are they tracking along her arm or what's the deal? Yeah, no, she was cleaning some nests from her front door. She was uh, getting her house, preparing her house to sell and uh, sort of cleaning it up. And the the caterpillars were literally dropping 
she said these baby caterpillars just dropping down and they're so light and fluffy you can barely feel them and uh so they're so hairy uh like little cotton balls and um so the next day she actually thought she had mosquito bites as well until other people in her neighborhood in this Facebook group all started posting similar pictures and similar um, experience with then she realized she wasn't the only person uh, you know in the neighborhood with with these nests in their in their property and so it was funny because when she went to her local pharmacy they were completely out of calamine lotion or anything else because the whole neighborhood had cleaned out any sort of you know skin products for uh, for these rashes. So how did you how did you come across our other guest here, David? Yes, I you know I I did start looking around um, locally, you know, who has been talking about the gypsy moth, uh, and a few different names had come up, and so I'd contacted some people who actually passed along David's name, and then at, at the same day, uh, I saw David's name in the I think it was a seed. The Global article or CBC, there was an article. No, it was the Globe and Mail article where he had uh, uh, been quoted and being from Peterborough and I'm from Peterborough. I decided to to send an email and and he was kind enough to agree to join us. Thank you, David. Oh, my pleasure. So David tells us that he identifies bugs, um, loves them under the microscope. They're beautiful things and we'll all fall in love once we put these bugs under the microscope. Now, I'm not so sure I agree with that, but uh, Davis, tell tell us about the gypsy moth. Tell us what we should know about. What are the what are the things we could talk about at the barbecue that'll fascinate our friends? Well, the, well, the thing that's most amazing is that the caterpillars fly. I, I I can't get my head around that. the The female moths can't fly, so it's a flightless female. So the original entomologist who brought them over to North America in the 1890s thought they wouldn't escape his the garden where he put them because uh, the females can't fly. Who would have thought that the caterpillars can fly? So the little first instars are about an eighth of an inch long, like four, four millimeters, send out a silken thread, the wind picks them up, and they just disperse and land and start eating. And that, that's such an amazing uh, behavior that you have the flying caterpillar, but the adult stage, which has wings, doesn't actually fly. Wow. So um, why would they, why, why did this person have them in their garden? What's their purpose? Uh, well, they, they, they just basically land and start to eat so they can eat a lot of different species. And so the good news for the gypsy moth is there's lots of trees around here. And so yeah. they have stuff to eat. And normally they're at low level in the background, you know, you might run across some of these caterpillars uh, if you're, or, a, or a moth or an egg mass. But every once in a while, there's a confluence of events and you get an outbreak. And so there's a kind of between an 8, 10, 12, 14-year cycle, more or less. And it's not coordinated geographically. The, the cycles occur kind of regionally. And you get these outbreaks where numbers build and then they peak and then they crash. What has to happen? Um, they have to build up be high enough numbers that they start to spread viruses between them and the viruses will come out of the the caterpillar and get blown onto other caterpillars the caterpillars will crawl out to the edge of a of a limb the viruses will just get blown out and infect the other caterpillars and if they're not very high density the viruses will just get blown away into nowhere but if there's lots of caterpillars around uh, they'll get infected and then the numbers plummet 
Oh so, my dear, that's that's too familiar. Well, it's yes. it's amazing, right? Like, there's a cyclicity to this that that that, uh, and it's classic predator prey dynamics. Only in this case, the predator is the virus. Um, there's all sorts of other cycles associated with it. Drives oak trees to produce masting of acorns in response to being denuded of leaves. So then the oaks will send out tons of acorns the following year or that year, depending on when they've been denuded. Then, of course, because there's so many acorns, the mice and squirrels can't eat them all. And a lot of those acorns have an opportunity to grow into small seedlings. So everything, these cycles actually work out to the benefit of a lot of creatures out there, including ourselves. Wow. So this is reforestation. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets rid of the the old trees that are closing off the canopy uh, as they get older and their immune systems aren't as good. They're they're uh, they're sick. They're vulnerable. Those ones get killed. They die. They can't replenish their leaves. The canopy opens up and you, the forest is naturally renewed. So at a level of the forest, this is a, a great phenomenon. We wouldn't want to stop it. Oh, interesting. Well, better than the fires we have out here. Same. Well, the fires do the same job. Uh, yeah, no, but we can't control them. And well, as you know from fires, if, if you stop the forest fires, you end up with an old forest, and then you lose the forest because there's no yeah. young wood growing up. So, at a regional scale, this is an amazing phenomenon. At the individual household scale, seeing your favorite tree die is not pleasant. I mean, so there's there's this bittersweet component to these creatures. Yeah, it's been causing a lot of controversy, actually, about, you know, because there are the those who are adamant of spraying the BTK, which maybe you can tell us about BTK, but there's whole neighborhoods trying to get the their neighborhood treated because they don't, they're afraid of next year and what's going to happen. Because um, you can drive around any city or town in, you know, central, eastern or like southern Ontario, and you'll see burlap around trees, you'll see duct tape all trying to prevent, yeah. you know, to save these trees. And and yeah, so one, yeah, one thing that I read was that this will just prolong the outbreak. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. And if you just let it take its course, it would go through the cycle you just described. But if we keep doing things to, st- to stop it, we're slowing it. It's almost like the third wave, fourth wave of COVID. We, you keep getting this. Yeah, interesting. Well, if you... It, so the, the literature suggests that there's a very good chance that by prolonging, by bringing them off that peak, you will prolong the outbreak. And then what could happen, and, and there's a good chance of this too, it, making predictions about the future is uh, it's not something I want to do. But if we're at a peak, then there's going to be a, a, a complete plummet in numbers, and then the trees will be fine. They can be denuded a couple of years. But if you drag this process out for five years and the oak trees have to keep pr- producing two sets of leaves every summer those trees are going to be, be dead right so you just end up killing you the trees you're trying to save but I, have, but I have my favorite tree can i protect it well sure just go out and take the eggs off of it when you see caterpillars kill the caterpillars yeah you okay. can find a lot of instructions online about how to get like a pail of soapy water and you scrape the the egg nests into the soapy water uh, in the pail I guess that will will kill them i'm there's there's a oh, whole instructions online off these huge oak trees well, I just use a garden hose with a car wash thing with soap on spray the leaves right like they the soap gets on them and then they just they suffocate. 
Because okay. all insects are covered with wax. Like, and so it, a surfactant layer just breaks the wax down and it plugs their breathing tubes and, and those guys, they'll just suffocate. It won't hurt the leaves. All right. So we know how to save our trees. Um, now, the rashes. Um, it looked urticarial, um, histamine-driven. Uh, um, very nice description of the article. Um, yeah. And is the histamine coming out of the uh, out of the little pears, or well, is that yeah, what you call them? Pears. It seems to be a combination of of things, like where there's host factors and um, you know insect factors. So the the little hairs. What are they called? The little bristles is what I call them. Yeah, yeah. They're they have a level of histamine in them which uh, I think increases actually with the age of the, the instar level, they were able to detect histamine in these hairs. So there's an immediate type of reaction when these um, touch the skin. However, most of the, the rashes are more of a delayed type hypersensitivity. And that was the sort of pivotal study that was done back in the 80s in New England, where they took eight patients who had had a history of the rash and patch tested them compared to 11 controls. And all eight of the the patients with a prior history of the, the rash had a positive patch test, and only one of 11 of the control group actually had a positive patch. Uh, so the, this delayed type hypersensitivity reaction is happening in some patients. And in different studies that have been done I guess that in Japan they have another they have a similar um, outbreak cycle, and they looked at at a large group, and those who had had prior history of the rash were more likely to have the rash. Older patients, if you were above seventy, you were less likely to have the rash. So different factors sort of supporting delayed type of uh, hypersensitivity reaction, but in addition to this urticarial uh, immediate reaction with contact. All right. So uh, systemic steroids for those that are severely affected, I guess. Yeah. So there are some patients, you know, I had I had a couple that didn't do anything and it went away on their own. I had a couple who cleared with with betamethasone valerate. Uh, one of our uh, one of the case series required clobetazole and one who just could not sleep at night and needed a course of prednisone. And when you do look at the cases in the literature, there are some that are they're just so severe that they require prednisone because of that impact on their quality of life, their lack of sleep, the constant itching. Uh, and, you know, the more people that I talk to in cases that I, that I hear about, there is, you know, it is this itch that wakes you up at night. So some patients just get desperate and they just like poison ivy, you know, they want yes. something that's going to clear it fast because they need to get back to their life. So it isn't everywhere where they're walked on or these organisms follow their skin there's some sort of immunological vent that uh, produces what our predecessors might have called papular urticaria is that right exactly this generalized event interesting so you get this immediate reaction but you also get a delayed so some patients will tell you it wasn't for two days that's you know so they have to think back oh it was those caterpillars that i was exposed to right we saw the same thing with cockroaches when I was in England in workers that worked in the labs that would get this urticaria reaction and then get the delayed type hypersensitivity later. Um, it was fascinating. David, what, what's your thoughts on this? Well, this this is actually quite exciting or interesting news. I, I read the paper. I read Belinda's paper. I thought it was terrific. And I, I was completely unaware of this uh, aspect of, of the problem. So if anything, this is the more serious 
concerned as far as I can see. I think the trees actually know how to deal with it quite well. Um. <laughs> so so we're going to have to line up those people in southwest Ontario and, and send them through the car wash. As a sufferer so of poison good. ivy, I have sympathy for anybody who's itching. This is this is awful. Yeah. 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 So let's let me talk to you a bit about just a little off for a second on this on the uh, entomological name change. Um, the the other bit that's showing up in the news media about the gypsy moth is the name gypsy and how um, it's it's considered um, not appropriate. Um, can you help us understand where, where entomologists are going with this? In in the bird world, you have official common names because one of the great contributors to our knowledge of birds are amateur bird watchers. And so they need to know what they're talking about when they talk about what they've seen. And so normally a common name is just that, what people use to describe the thing. So you might have flowers and just call them blue flowers. And then someone else say, no, those are irises. Well, if you know them as blue flowers, they're blue flowers to you. It doesn't matter. But in birds, there's been a movement to come up with official common names to, to be able to use that uh, contribution of those data. In the insect world, this is not normally done. We don't have official common names, except for maybe a few uh, that cause serious diseases, like the housefly. Everyone knows a housefly, and you wouldn't want to confuse it with anything else. Uh, this, this is just a common name. I guess the Entomological Society of America and the Toronto Conservation Society are, are suggesting a, a switch of common name to LDD moth. That's fine. Uh, as long as we know what we're talking about, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, so actually, it, it, you normally use the Latin name to make sure you know exactly what you're talking about because a lot of insects have the same common name. Well, can you pronounce the Latin name for us of this uh, guy? Well, I'll take a guess. I, I, <laughs> I, I did take Latin, but I didn't do well. So, <laughs> uh, Lamantria dispar, and I think Linnaeus gave, uh, gave the name to it. So it's Lamantria dispar. I think they're now saying dispar, dispar. For some reason, there's two species epithets. I don't know why. Well, fascinating, because Linnaeus had a lot to do with our nomenclature as well, as it as dermatological terms were were developed. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Great systematist, right? Put things in, mm -hmm. in systematic uh, organization. Pre-Darwin, so the thinking at the time was everything was uh, in a category. So it was very categorical thinking, no understanding of of natural selection and uh, changing of things over time. Melinda, has the epidemic fallen off or is it increasing or what, what, what are you seeing in the uh, clinic? I'm not seeing any sort of new cases. If anything, it's just patients telling you about the, you know, what was happening before from the out outdoors aspect, like being at my cottage, I'm not seeing them sort of crawl across my uh, kitchen table anymore, like I was uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. Um, but I am seeing a lot more of these moths flying around. Like before I was snapping photos of all these caterpillars with the very characteristic um, back, I think, is it six blue dots that are, and then red dots? Very characteristic looking. Uh, the the moths are a bit less aesthetically pleasing. They're just mm -hmm. a tan and brown color. Uh, but there's a lot of them around. Uh, but as as you mentioned, they don't. Uh, the females don't fly. Uh, the males do. And um, yeah, so they're kind of caught in the spider webs and everything. 
the defoliation hasn't been as big of an aspect as I thought. Initially, I was seeing areas with the trees completely defoliated sort of at the end of Stony Lake here, but it's kind of seemed to have filled in somewhat. Yeah, the leaves will come back, right? So the leaves, have, it's, I've heard someone describe it in Toronto, I think uh, the Toronto Conservation Authority as a second spring that, that we get to experience. Because the leaves are a beautiful color, they're very young, they're very nice. I, I just have to say, if so, this phenomena, if if we if this was occurring in an obscure island in the Atlantic, and David Attenborough was doing a voiceover, and and there was really dramatic music, people would pay money to go see these phenomena of the trees barren and the flying caterpillars and and the masses of caterpillars on the trunks of the trees, and we have it handed to us on a platter. And this great, exciting natural event, and we we come up with reasons to to think how bad it is. It just astonishes me. Yeah, it's a, there's been some hysteria with it, totally. And I, you know, I try to imagine. Not only are you, like you said, if it's your tree, so you're you're protecting your property, you're protecting your trees, and then at the same time you've got this itchy rash, and you're not sleeping because so you're getting it from both ways. But I yeah. I do find it it fascinating. Um, uh, our, my property has not been affected. So like you say, it, the whole cycle to me is is just amazing. And the fact that, you know, you can go back in the literature and see these outbreaks of the rashes and dermatologists talking about it in the 80s. And then, um, you know, in the 2000, mid, early 2000s, and then now, like, these are the only times you'll find it in the literature. Is there any, David, do, do they pick on particular kinds of trees? They, they really like the oaks, but they'll they'll go after most broadleaf trees that I'm aware of, and they'll also take pines and spruce. Now, pines and spruce do take a kicking. They can't – if you think of a deciduous tree is used to throwing its leaves away every year, so its leaves are essentially throwaways, right? Uh, but a, a, a conifer puts a lot of new, uh, investment into each needle, so it doesn't like to lose – uh, half its needles, uh, and, and and those will end up dying quite commonly. But they prefer a deciduous uh, tree if, if the moth lands. That's their preference. Okay. Will that change the colors uh, this season in eastern Canada? I suspect so, because I think that's driven by climate. But um, I'm off my area of expertise. so Okay. Fair enough. Well, so are we, surprisingly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So, so is there anything else we should know about this gypsy moth and its infestations? We we know how to take care of our local property. We we know how to take care of the people that get it. Um, just smile and enjoy the nature, I guess, is what you're saying. Well, I mean, like, like don't get me wrong. When I see them on my tree and it's it's a, a nice apple tree or something like that, I'll go out and crush all the little gaffers if I can, and I just use my hands and squash them. I mean, just. Just get used to it and do it, right? <laughs> do you get hives on your hands? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, my hands uh, are all calloused, uh, and I just squash them. I haven't ever got hives from these. Uh, uh, well, but... It's interesting. I wonder if everybody who is exposed um, develops uh, cutaneous changes. With histamine, you think they would. Um, mm -hmm. the, the late hypersensitivity, I'm not so sure. So you go out barehanded and you take them off their trees? Yeah, I just squash them against the trunk and be done with it. I mean, you have to wash your hands after, but but I mean, it's it's an unpleasant task. No one else wants to join me in this. 
at my home, <laughs> but uh, it's what I do, and and that doesn't de decrease my my admiration for the for the creature. But I mean, I have a tree. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and trees are expensive. Yeah, yeah trees are nice. Yeah. yeah, and expensive. Yeah, so great. Birds eat them. That's birds something. eat them. Yeah, lots of birds eat them. Blue jays eat them. In the winter, the chickadees love their, their eggs, so the chickadees are going to be really happy. Lots of birds are going to eat them. The mice and voles and shrews eat the pupae in the ground. So lots of these things are going to do very, very well this winter. Is that a good thing? Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, should Belinda be putting out the mouse traps now? Well, no, I was going to say, well, maybe it will keep them, the mice from inside my cottage. They'll be they'll be full oh, from yes of course the yes of course the feed the feeds outside your cottage yeah but don't they come in for the warmth yeah they come in when the snow gets slightly melted and then all the little tunnels get flooded with water and then they're kind of in a hard spot so they try to find a way in yeah that's when you get them okay so let's predict the future what's going to happen we're going to have more blue jays we're going to have more um, chickadees chickadees for sure and maybe some more field mice. Oh, I think so. Yeah, lots. Based on the food, just on this new different uh, food source. Yeah, that's a really high high nutrition food source. So the mice gobble them up. Okay, so giant mice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes cabin life ever more exciting. Eh? Yeah. I, I, I do have one question. How, I mean, I guess there's no way to know, like, will next year, will it just keep, Will next year be more? Like, will there be more hysteria next year of, of uh, you know, everyone going crazy and trying to protect their, or I guess you just don't know. Is this the big year before they crash? Because it has gone up like 1,200% from, you know, from 2019 to 2020, there was a 1,200% increase. So is it going to exponentially? That question terrifies me because here I am trying to pitch it that once we get the peak, there'll be a crash. And I've actually advised groups about this, and then I can see them coming back. Well, it's worse this year. We shouldn't have listened to you. And and so I'm, I hasten to say I'm talking about trying to predict the future here. Yeah. Um, and then others have decided to go ahead and put out the BT anyway, uh, spray anyway, uh, because that seems like a fair thing to do. I, I think one of the paradigms people work with it is if I put a bug in a jar with poison and shake it up, the bug dies. Therefore, if I let poison go in the environment, it should work. But the bugs aren't in the jar. That's the that's the big difference. Yeah. Here. So now um, to Melinda's question, I mean, could this go on for three or four years? Sure, it could. Yeah, absolutely, it could. And then there could be more dead trees than people want. Unlikely. I don't see how it will. Where does the virus hang out? Inside the caterpillars, right? There's always this underlying level of viral load and bacteria and fungus that will attack caterpillars. But the virus knows enough to take advantage of a bonanza when it comes along. And how does winter affect these? Uh, they pupate in the uh, soil and also the, the eggs. They'll overwinter in the, in the egg stage. Okay. And, and then what about fire? Does fire uh, destroy Fire them? will kill them. Yeah, fire kills them. <laughs> Along with the trees, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kills a lot. But would, there, would there ever be a, a place for controlled burns? Not for gypsy moss, in my opinion. I don't see okay. why you would. Uh, there'd be other reasons to have controlled burns, allowing the canopy to be thinned out. Yeah. Well, I was wondering about a fire break, if you will, because you said they 
they fly, but they can't fly very far. Oh, yeah, they sure can. They can fly right over it. They'll just get picked up by the wind and carried like clouds of moths, little tiny caterpillars as oh. far as the wind will take them. The, well, so the paradigm, the way we have to understand the insect movement in North America is, is you get a front move in from Texas, and that's carrying insects from Texas and the western U.S. into Ontario. You also get insects from Canada going down to the southern U.S. So every time there's a movement of, of cold front, warm front, Insects are carried aloft. They they will freeze. They'll super cool up there. They'll hang out for a couple of weeks. They'll drop, come to, and start eating if they land in a good place. So the insects are moved all over the continent, including these things. They're, they're actually brilliant at getting from one place to another. This perception that it's little short hops is not entirely true. You must be fascinated at a barbecue. Well, <laughs> people must cringe when you tell your stories. I don't. I don't know. I I, I, I think they're interesting. Some people hate insects, and so they don't. Yeah. Like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you have two groups of friends. One that cluster inside their homes uh, because you've made them afraid of the falling insects from the sky, and uh, those that understand this pandemic kind of it's all it's all nature. This is all if if. We wouldn't have these beautiful trees if it wasn't for those sorts of uh, evolutions, right? Yeah, yeah. But we're in nature. That's the thing. We're not like the gods in, in uh, you know, Valhalla or Asgard looking down on it. We're actually in it. And we should make sure that we think like that. We're part of the system even as we observe it. You could easily, because we're really good at conquering nature and we make our houses to feel like summer all year long, because of that, we, we have this tendency to think of nature as the thing that's out there, forgetting that everything we do interacts with it. We're actually part of it. Fascinating discussion. So, Melinda, any, any more questions? That I, I mean, I guess for my own little journey here with the gypsy moth is when I first learned about it, I was horrified that it was destroying all our trees and rashing, you know, giving all these people these horrible rashes. But I've, I've almost come full circle where I, I totally agree with David and that, you know, we need to just see how this goes and not uh, not try to really intervene with it other than, you know, protecting your apple tree in your yard. Um, but I don't think that's where the major, uh, the major issue is anyway. So I, I think just really one of the things I wanted, like the whole purpose of the paper was to just let people know about this, number one, because I think it's fascinating. Number two, because they might see patients with this rash in May and June and uh, know what questions to ask on on their history. Uh, but I think education and just understanding the whole cycle really makes it more um, acceptable. And, you know, hearing from someone like David that this is not, you know, the end of the world and we just need to learn to uh, accept it and enjoy it. David, do moths give people any trouble? I don't know. If I see clothes moths, I hate the little gaffers in my house wrecking yeah. my blankets. I kill those things too. Like, I mean, <laughs> but do you think the moths that uh, that we're seeing with the gypsy moth? Oh, the adult moths. Yeah, no, the adult no. moths. No, they don't. No, they're totally innocuous. I mean, they are kind of drab looking from a distance, but under the microscope, all the designs come out. You know, all the colors come out. We have a, a natural affinity to mammals and birds because the scale is right, but but the insects, the scale is just so small that we that we don't actually see the beauty that's in them. 
But I've never seen an insect under a microscope that wasn't absolutely exquisitely glorious. I've never seen one. And I'm happy to look for one, but I've just never seen it. I actually had a student looking at a maggot under a microscope, and there was a kaleidoscope of colors coming off the outer surface. And just that barrage of colors. I, I heard her gasp with astonishment. Well, we have maggots, and maybe that's a topic for another um, uh, wound healing session to, to yeah, help okay. for us. Okay. <laughs> well, that was fascinating, and thanks to you both. You've really entertained us and taught us about the interface between the environment and humans, and of course, that in, that interface is the skin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So if you liked it, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Tell your friends about us on social media and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. So until next time, I'm Kirk Barber and be good to each other.